trust. It's a very interesting thing, isn't it? Trust. And when our children were young, we worked out, somebody said, gave good advice. We realized we should write something in our wills about what should happen with the children were we both to die, my wife and I. It's a good thing to do. If you have young children, it's a good plan to, to, to give some direction about what you would like to happen. And then as you get a bit older, you then begin, we've now set up so our daughters have um, power of attorney for us. Do you know that kind of thing? So you can set it up so that they, if you lose capacity or choose to hand over, they can take over two areas, either your, whole, your finances and all that kind of thing, or else your um, decisions about your health and care. And those are big things. You have to think carefully about who you're going to... Who would you have you look after your children if you were to die, right? It's a big choice, isn't it? Or who would you give authority to have uh, complete control of all, of all the money? You might say, I don't have any money. Well, then you don't perhaps need to worry about it. But if you do have any, you have to think about those things. So um, now there are decisions to be made at those times. And I, I know there's people in this church I would really trust my life with, actually. I would happily make them, if I didn't have grown-up daughters, that it's their proper duty to do that. But if I didn't, there would be people I would happily trust that too, who I've known for many years and who I would think would, would feel utterly safe giving that kind of authority to. So trust is a very important thing. Now this month we're taking the theme of worship. I had the theme of uh, our progress and joy in the faith. Joy is about our enjoyment of God to worship. If we have the next slide please, Peter, is, is our, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right? Christianity is a, a, a faith of enjoyment, of joy. And worship is about seeing the worth in another person and especially in God. Now, when I became a Christian, it was really because I, I was about 18. I knew some Christians at college, at Godalming College, and I was impressed by their lives. Their arguments for Christian faith were actually quite weak, but I found their lives attractive. I thought if there were more people like this in the world, that would be a good thing. And so that enabled me to entertain the possibility that what they believed could be true. So when I went along to a meeting and someone explained about the Christian faith, and they actually gave a few decent reasons for, belie for believing in Christ, I went home and I just prayed a very simple prayer to God. And there was nothing particularly emotional that happened then, but for some, I, I can't really explain what it was, but I just knew that God was real. But there was a difficult thing about that because I hadn't been brought up going to church. I'd hardly read the Bible at all. I didn't know what, what the Bible taught about what God was like. So I believed that God was real. I was convinced that God was real, but I wasn't yet convinced that God was good. Right? I was convinced that God was real, but I was not yet convinced that God was good. And so I spent s several years, actually, two or three years, um, praying and trying to follow God, but also a little bit doubtful whether he was good. And getting into myself into situations where I felt I'd done what he said, things went a bit pear-shaped, and I was saying, you tricked me, God. And I was blaming God because I thought that uh, he'd been maybe uh, up to no good, trying to do me down. And so 
during that time, though, I was gradually getting to know God more because I was reading the Bible, I was being with other Christians, and, and gradually more and more I began to trust him so that when life went a bit pear-shaped, I didn't immediately retaliate at God and blame him and get angry with him, but I began to realize there are other forces at play that in this world God is opposed by Satan and for this time and also by people who disobey and resist God's will and therefore God's will is not being perfectly done on earth at this time and it's not entirely down to God's fault because people are getting in the way. And so I began to understand these things more and more. So the Bible is very crucial in helping us to be able to trust God, to know that he is good. I saw an email from Open Doors, uh, sorry, the Bible Society this week, and they distribute the Bible, pay for Bibles to be distributed all over the world. And they have a, a, a Bible shop in Aleppo in Syria. And you can imagine how challenging that has been in, the, in recent times. And they reported how they are being constantly asked for Bibles by people in Aleppo. All through the period of that terrible war fighting, they were being asked for Bibles. And before Christmas, they handed out 5,000 nativity storybooks for children in Aleppo. 5,000, right, in addition to any Bibles they were handing out there. And um, they said, people feel it is only God who can really meet their need. It, when you're in a situation like that, some realities start to dawn on you, don't they? And um, unfortunately, in our world, in our society, we have so much stuff. We think, oh, if we only can have more stuff, that will meet my need. And you seem to have to get a lot of stuff before you realize no stuff does not meet your need. Man does not live by bread alone, as Jesus said, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so... Uh, and they then gave a particular account that we asked one girl what she would do with the Bible when she got home. Sounds like she was quite a young child. So we asked one girl what she would do with the Bible when she got home. She looked at us and asked, don't you know what you do with the Bible? Well, I'll tell you, these books are holy and they are for the inside so that God will live in you. That's, yes, that's what he wants. I'll read them and read them until I know that he's really inside me. Right? Well, that's a great attitude to bring for the Bible. Read it and read it until you know God is really inside you. Now I want to just read the first verse of Psalm 15. It'll be on the slide, Peter. Thank you. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? It's a very simple question that begins this psalm. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The question presumes a longing. The, the person praying this prayer is presumed in the prayer that the assumption of this prayer, if you read it, is that this psalmist, it's actually King David, wants to know how he can dwell in God's sacred tent and live on God's holy mountain. Agreed? So there's an assumed longing that is in this place. He wants to live with God. So I've asked this question before, but the question I think is valid again. Who, where do you have fridge rights? In whose home can you be and feel completely at free to walk into their kitchen, to open their fridge and to take a bottle of beer or uh, uh, you know, something out to eat it? Right? That's, you wouldn't normally do that in someone else's home, would you? You have to be really at home to feel free to do that. You, now, if my daughters were visiting our home, they probably would feel they had fridge rights, yes? And, um, 
But that's, that's a, you have fridge rights in a place where you really feel assured that you are at home and that you're not taking a liberty to go to the fridge and just to help yourself to a glass of milk or uh, to, to pour yourself a glass of orange juice or whatever it may be that you find in the fridge or, or the larder rights, whatever you want to call it. So the thing is, God... The, the King David was saying, I want to dwell in your house. I want to have fridge rights in the house of God. And God, that there's a presumption that he has that longing and that God has, in a sense, has made an invitation to human beings. Why won't please come and live in my house? Now, um, the same question, I suppose, is whether you have a key. Who has a key to your house? And it's an interesting thing. Our daughters have both been left home from something like 10 or 12 years since the second one left home. They still have keys to our house. We don't have keys to their places. <laughs> but that something happens in that kind, doesn't it? And so we've managed to get most of their stuff out of the house, but, but not all of it. And partly that's because they said, oh, you can throw that away. And I can't bear to throw it away. You know, pictures they did when they were at primary school or something like that. I, I still feel the need to keep. I think, well, when I'm dead, they'll find these pictures and they'll enjoy them. No, they won't. They won't. They've, said, they've told me they want it thrown away. But God does not just give us an invitation to visit. He's calling to all human beings to say, come and live in my house with me. And so that's why it's because David has understood that God wants us to come and live with him in his house forever that he asks this question, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Because this is a question of worship. Who can come and worship you? And it's a vision of the future and of our lives which is very different to what most people think our life is for. If you go to the next slide, Peter... There's uh, Alan Scott, that we've, he's a leader of a church in, in um, Coleraine in Northern Ireland. He talks about this triangle of, of longings, language and lifestyle. And that the whole psalm actually explores the longings, language and lifestyle. We're not going to probably look at the rest of the psalm today. But this, is, this first verse is to do with our longings. It's saying, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? There's a longing in David. I want to dwell in your sacred tent. Who can dwell in your sacred tent? There's a longing. I want to live on your holy mountain, God, my Father. Who gets to do that? I want to know because I want to be there. I have a longing to be with God. So this question assumes longing. And as often, if we could go back to the verse 1 of Psalm 15, Peter, in Hebrew poetry, it's helpful because I think God knew it would be translated to all kinds of different languages so that down the centuries, people who speak English and Spanish and Portuguese and Arabic and uh, Mandarin Chinese, all people who speak all the hundreds of languages across the world, they would be, receive the Bible in translation. And I think God, knowing that, he organized it. So when these Old Testament poets were writing prayers in poetry, that there is some rhyming and things, which you know when you translate from one language to another, the rhyming gets lost, doesn't it? Your rhyming doesn't work. But what they also put in there is rhyming of thoughts. Well, the rhyming of thoughts does come across in translation. And so you often get these couplets, these two lines. They're saying something similar but slightly different. Who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? 
So David's talking about a tent and a mountain. And these things speak to us of different aspects of being in God's presence. Now the tent, have ever, any of you been camping? Okay, quite a few have been camping. Who loves to go camping? Okay, there's still a few hands. I'm amazed. There's quite a few hands still went up. It's, it's not my favorite thing to do in the world. And um, many years ago, we had a guy, I was talking to someone at the celebration service yesterday for Ted and Daphne, who's still in touch with Big, Big Pete. Do you remember Big Pete? And married Jane. It was a Red Indian wedding, if you remember, um, that I conducted an awful long time ago. And... Um, Anyway, just caught up a little. He lived in a teepee when he lived here on, on Cornelis' land, I think, didn't he? He lived in a teepee in a tent. And, um, or a bender. Was there? No, there was a bender, wasn't there? It was a bender, actually, which is a different teepee and then a bender, wasn't it? Yeah, so I remember visiting him, um, and must say, not my idea of, uh, of, of things. Now, this psalm was written about 3,000 years ago, not so long before many people probably did live in tents. And tents really were your, your home. It speaks of the intimate, of the family home. And so um, this was, it's, being, it's being brought into, you can't, can't make a very, very big tent. So it's a place of being brought into a very intimate place with God and saying, how can I come and live very close to you, Father, in the, in the very family of God and be close to you? And, you know, in ancient days, they didn't have police forces. They didn't really have a legal system as such. And so uh, sort of good dealing between people was brought about through social obligations that were there. And so one of those in ancient days is called guest rights. So you might live, be living there in your tent and you've got your flocks of sheep and camels and what have you around that you're grazing and you're perhaps nomadic. And then one day some people turn up at your tent and you have a decision. Are you going to let them, are you going to welcome them? Do you know, you don't know these people, they're strangers. Do you trust them? Will you bring them into your tent and feed them? And, and you'll be aware, many of you, that in Eastern cultures, there's a great priority given to hospitality upon feeding people. But on the back of that, there was this thing called guest rights. So that once somebody had been you'd brought somebody into your tent and you had fed them, you came under an obligation to protect them. You really did. You came under an obligation to protect them. You can actually read a story, I like this, in the Old Testament, where Lot was in Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah, do you remember? And God was wanting to find out, um, and he sent some angels to find out what's happening in those cities. And Lot welcomes the two. He thinks he doesn't realize they're angels. He thinks they're men. He takes the men into his house. You can read this in the book of Genesis. And then the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, who were a place of criminals and evil people, they wanted to abuse these two men. But Lot, he's taken them into his house. They now have guest rights. So Lot must protect them. And so you'll see a quite extraordinary story play out. And it's because... They have gained guest rights from Lot and therefore he must protect them. And, and that will then help make sense of that story as what plays out if you go and read it. I'm not going to go into it anymore now. So, so, so dear friends, David is asking, how can I have guest rights, guest rights with God? Because we're told in the Bible that he's our protector, agreed? And, and he offers himself to us as his protector. So you know, we Christians, we break bread together. In other words, it's different Christian traditions call it communion, um, 
the Lord's table. It is the Lord's table. Do you notice that? It's the Lord's table. It's not our table. You might say, yes, well, we bought the table we use. Yes, we did. But the Bible makes it very clear. It is the Lord's table that we gather to. It is his meal that he offers to us. And you say, but I bought that bread from Tesco. Friends, you've got to understand in the spirit, it is the Lord's table. He is the one offering the bread. He is the one who is sharing the cup with us. This is very important. It's not us sharing it with one another. He is sharing his meal with us. And when we partake, he is being bound to us by guest rights. Uh, he is, he, we are renewing each time we break bread our guest rights with God. And he is then undertaken. He will protect us. In fact, he must protect us. And, he will, and you, you may not be worthy of his protection, but if you will come in faith to Jesus, unworthy though you are, he is bound to be your protector. And David, that's just one dimension of this. So the tent to come into the uh, intimate knowledge of God's protection, of God as our father, is a wonderful thing. And, you know, sometimes people think they, they know, some people think they know God is probably good out there, but they want to kind of live life and ignore God. They don't want to have to come under God's moral rules. I want to live my own life and be rebellious and all the rest. But when I'm in trouble, I want to be able to rush back to God and, and ask for his help. Isn't God gracious that so often he will still protect us when we behave like that? Well, he's so kind to us and so frequently welcomes us back like the prodigal son coming back to to God the Father. He didn't deserve to be received back, but the Father wants to receive us back. And so he keeps doing that. So as we break bread week by week, let us welcome that. There are times, there's occasions in the Bible where people want to kind of trick themselves into guess right, like the Gibeonites in the book of Joshua. But you don't need to trick yourself. It's not like God needs tricking. You can't pull the wall over God's eyes as if you, you are deserving of his protection. We come and we receive, we respond to his invitation, and so we can enter into. Worship is responding to that invitation to come into the tent of God. What about the mountain? Well, mountains have very traditionally been seen as places of spiritual um, uh, kind of, uh, sort of engagement and connection. And they speak to us more of God's magnificence. Mountains are huge things. They speak to us of God's might, of his greatness, and, and that he is um, he, he's very large, he's very big, he's very powerful, he's very all-knowing, and all those kind of dimensions of knowing God. And so David is asking for both. He's asking both for that intimate sense of God as Father, but also for the gr- to know the greatness and to connect with the greatness of God. And we should let God, our Father, be both of these things for us. If you're trying to be selective and saying, you just want God as your, your dad, that kind of thing, but not prepared to let him be your Lord, you're trying to have something you can't have. He, he wants to be our Savior and our Lord. And, and you can't choose one or the other. And, uh, he, and when we offer him to others, we can't just offer him as Lord. We must also offer him as Savior. The two belong together because God is, not, is, 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 is a single person. He cannot be separated out. So the, um, the Holy Spirit loves us. He wants to uh, protect us. He wants to gather us up into the experience of God's sacred tent, but also God's mountain. 
And so worship starts with this longing to experience God in his sacred tent and God on his mountain. These two dimensions of God. And so as we worship, some of our songs focus more on our closeness to God and that he's a person, he's a father to us. He's a good, good father we can sing. And those are rich songs in which we enter into the experience of being in the sacred tent. And other songs we're singing, holy, holy are you. Uh, And we're singing about his majesty and how exalted he is. And this is also an important dimension of worship because we're engaging with the majesty and the greatness of God who is utterly huge and beyond description and yet in some way as we worship at those times we can have a sense of the 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 awesome greatness of God and I hope that is your experience and if it is not yet it can be in the future and it's so good to embrace both kinds of songs and song some songs bring these two things together and that is also good So Psalm 15 is written by David, longing for the presence of God. Worship has that longing in itself. And David, and so I want to ask you today, just to reflect, I'm not asking for hands up, to reflect in yourself. Do you long for God in this way? Would this ever be your question? Has it ever been your question yourself? Do you desire God? When we gather I know that there are many people who gather here quite regularly and who come with faith that they will wish to engage God, wish and they know, they know there's a way in which we can attune our being towards God. We can switch our being away from, um, you know, the the upgrade on my phone that I'm thinking about, which upgrade shall I have? Because... These things can fill our thoughts or I wonder what's going to happen in that storyline on EastEnders. You know, will Deirdre do this or the other or whatever, I don't know, you know, or whatever your favourite soap is, okay? And you, your, um, w- our headspace can be taken up with such things a- and to worship is to put aside these things. I'm not saying any of these things are necessarily evil or wrong, but to put aside those things and to turn our thoughts to the content of the words we sing in the songs and the scriptures that are read and to let them, to honour God by allowing these things to fill our entire thoughts and our being and it's also to turn our affection towards God. It is to, and it's, it's difficult isn't it because you can't touch him sort of thing and in our tradition we don't have a nice statue here, we don't have a big crucifixion a sad-looking crucified Christ on it or something like this. We, we don't give ourselves much visual. And, and that's partly to do with what we interpret of the Ten Commandments. We won't discuss that any further. But to incline our inner being to, as it were, search beyond ourselves and reach out in the spirit toward God. This is worship. This is what it is to worship. And the songs help us to do that. There are some traditions of spirituality that encourage us to try and empty our minds. You've perhaps come across these things. I, I used to do this before I was a Christian. Uh, and it, it, things like meditating on the sound of one hand clapping, I remember. was, And it's, it, I used to think, oh, how profound. Now I think, how stupid. Right? 
it's, it's just it's kind of emptiness, it's kind of a nonsense about it. And uh, I'm not saying all other religions, that all their practices are, are entirely foolish, but some of them are, frankly, foolish. Uh, and they're muddle-headed. You know, Christianity says, no, meditate on the Lord, meditate on the Scripture, let rich words fill your thoughts. Because as it, when I think that Christ was killed for me, my heart is filled with gratitude. I, I, I'm, I I'm ref, reflect through the songs. I am enriched and I'm filled with gratitude. So I want to move along now and say that um, John Piper says this, that mission exists because worship doesn't. Right? Mission exists because worship doesn't. In other words, the whole purpose of mission is to bring more worshippers. God seeks worshippers. The Bible tells us that. Jan will be covering this next week when she speaks from John chapter 4. The Father seeks worshippers. So when we go to tell people about Christ, yes, we want people to put their faith in Christ, but, but in putting their faith in Christ, this should make people into worshippers. That if you don't become a worshipper, you've not really become a follower of Christ. If, if you have no inclination to worship, if you have no inclination to call upon God, you, you're, you, then you, the faith you profess is, is, is not uh, yet a mature and full faith. Father wants us to be those who appeal to God. So when we pray at Engine Room, you, you may not be able to attend. Well, that, that's fine. But if you simply choose not to come to pray, what I have to say to you, what kind of faith is that because you know you might say oh I can pray on my own it's quite true you can pray on your own at home but you know I've learned almost all I know about prayer from praying with other people as I've been over the many years now that I've walked with the Lord with other people I've learned so much from how they pray I think oh that's amazing I can pray like that and, and so we grow and, and there's something when we're together there's a hot spot of God presence Christ said that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. So you can certainly pray on your own, and God is with you. But you, you know, if you, if you have a heart like this, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent, who may live on your holy mountain, you have a desire for hotspots of God's presence. And there are hotspots when there's more than one of us who have faith in Jesus. There is a real hotspot in such places. So we seek them out. We have a desire for them and so uh, now of course one of the reasons we can be a bit wary about God is because we can feel he's a bit frightening and we thought about this yesterday so I'd like to look at it again from Psalm 139 and not all of you were at the funeral but it bears repetition anyway where we have the psalmist saying um, you searched me Lord and you know me as I read this psalm, I find it equally either reassuring or a little bit frightening. And sometimes there are books, often science fiction type books and films, that envisage a world in which somebody knows all about us, like 1984 and Big Brother, you know. Or did any of you see that film Minority Report over 10 years ago? I think it came out. It's a film in which it's, it's presupposed that there are some people have some kind of power to be aware of, when, of the intentions of other people to commit crimes. And so they set up this kind of government, sort of the police force has become a force which arrests people before they do their crime and punishes them and tries them and punishes them for the crime they were about to commit. 
you might think, wow, that's like weird, but I think there are th elements of, of pushing towards that in governments in our day, actually. And um, th there's, of course, they can't actually predict it because it's the policing of people's thoughts. It's 1984. There's something quite frightening about it. But when we... <coughs> The thing about the government, you know, the National Security Agency w reading all your Facebook posts or whatever, and um, such things, if they do that, <laughs> is, is that if they, they may know a great deal, but are they good? That's the concern, isn't it? Big Brother's intentions were not good in 1984, that book. So Psalm 139 describes God's knowledge of us. You search me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain it. This real tension. What, 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 I can read this and I find it reassuring, but there's a part of me that finds it a little frightening as well. What makes that difference? What makes such words reassuring? Because if we presuppose that God is who God is, he's a supreme being, he knows everything, well, he knows all this stuff anyway. But I like to live my life as if I can keep secrets from God, don't you? It's ridiculous. I don't know why I imagine this. But I imagine he doesn't really know my ulterior motives and all that other stuff. But he does know all this stuff. So this could be reassuring or frightening. Well, on, on how am I going to work out which it is? Well, it's to do with who he is and his character and what he's like and whether he's trustworthy. <coughs> because if he is good, then it doesn't matter that he knows everything. In fact, there's a wonderful gift in this. If he knows everything about me and he's still giving me guest rights and he still makes me his son and says, I'll be your father then I have the best possible situation because I do not need to hide anything and I, so I'm completely known and I am completely loved. What a wonderful thing because th there are countless people in our world who wish from the bottom of their heart to be loved but they are not sure they're lovable. That is the human condition. We're not certain we can be loved. We're not at all sure when we start relationships whether people will love us. We feel quite certain we should probably hide things about ourselves, make sure we put our best forward so that we can be loved for that. But then we're not sure about that love because we know that the person that is being loved is the presentation we have made rather than the whole truth about ourselves. And the tr Christian gospel is, no, you bring the whole truth about yourself. God knows it anyway. So just get to that place where you realize he knows everything about you anyway. And that's why this psalm ends. If I, we just go to the very last section, you have to skip a few, Peter. <clears throat> psalm 139, by this prayer, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. He's, he's realized if, if God is good, then I might as well, he knows everything anyway. <laughs> just let him come and have a look. If, admit that he's looking at me and knows me through and through because I am loved anyway. And this is really made clear in the New Testament. <coughs> so I want to ask you to consider, if you don't already do this, whether you might 
keep a journal. If you're a Christian and you have some history with God and life with God, it can be really useful to keep a journal, to write things down about what God has said to you, about experiences you've had and how you've reflected on those experiences. What did it tell you? Because I think a lot of us are a little bit anxious about these things. We don't process them. Events happen in life and actually we're blaming God. We're rather angry with God about them. We've perhaps never really verbalized that because we think, oh God, that, that's not, I'm a Christian, I shouldn't ever be angry with God. So we're not really consciously doing it, but somewhere we've got bitter or angry with God about something. Whereas a journal helps you to actually get this stuff out. It helps you to, when you ask that question, say, search me, O God, know my heart, test me. You, you then, you, then you, you get that prayer and you sit with your journal and you write, what are the real things that you're feeling? What are, the, what are you really angry about? And you start to tease out that feeling because Father wants you to help tease out these feelings because he knows them already. The problem is we don't know them. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Right? Because he says, as someone said earlier, he, Father sees us perfectly. He doesn't have spectacles on or whatever that, that means he doesn't see us clearly. He does see us clearly. He's the one who does. He sees that he sees what he, he sees that he has the vision of what he really wanted us to be, made us to be. So a journal just helps you to process those things, to know that you're known but also loved. That you're known and you are loved. And that deepens our relationship and makes us desire him more and love him more and worship him more fully. And that's very, very precious. So many of us are actually longing for more closeness in all our relationships. And maybe after Christmas, you know, they say after Christmas is the peak time of people going to lawyers to say, I want to get a divorce. Because people have such high hopes, oh, it's going to be Christmas, we'll all be together. And then when it happens, it, it can seem like a crashingly empty experience for some people. And they realize the emptiness of their relationship. You know, relationships need investment. They need disclosure. And our God has disclosed himself. He came, when he came among us, he sent his son Jesus. He came in the most vulnerable way, becoming an embryo, then a baby, as we've just celebrated at Christmas. How vulnerable was that? He risked all to show that we could trust him. He was willing to make himself vulnerable. That's how trust is built, as we make ourselves vulnerable to one another. God has been terribly slandered in our world. He's the most slandered person in the world. And we have to keep reminding ourselves, no, God is good. And God is good. The lies you've been told, the lies your own heart whispers to you about God, we need to fight off those lies because our God is good.